0: Okay, I'm obsessed with Audible because it lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And with female writers and heroines, celebrity narration, multicast productions, Audible has you covered for every type of excitement that you're looking for, including true crime and mystery, and I know all of you love that too. For example, right now, I'm listening to None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash reality or text reality life to 500, 500 that's audible.com slash reality or text reality life to 500, 500 with four daughters and two on a dance team. I can tell you we go through a lot of mascara in my house, but I'm crazy about L'Oreal Paris new panorama mascara, which catches every lash for corner to corner for maximum volume. If you're looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank, this is yours. The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. I've been using it for about two weeks now and I feel like my eye has completely opened up and the girls are crazy about it too. They've got a tapered brush to catch every lash, one of the best mascara wands that I've ever used. And like I said, this luxe appearance of this gold package You got to get it. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. L'Oreal Paris new Panorama Mascara. You're going to love it. The amazing Kate Casey. Welcome back to another episode of Reality Life with Kate Casey. I hope that you had a great weekend. I've got some good news. There's a great new series on stars. It's called The Cult of the Family. Now, stars, I believe, has a Short period of time right now where you can do a trial. I recommend doing that. And also, a lot of the stars docu series appear on Hulu. This one I want you to check out, especially on the heels of their great docu series on Nexium. This one is about the most notorious case in Australian history about the Melbourne-based cult, the Family, which was led by Anne Hamilton Byrne, who was a yoga teacher who claimed to be Jesus Christ reincarnated. This is the most fascinating cult. I have said it before. This woman fascinates me more than any cult leader. You know, it's really unusual for a cult leader to be a woman. And this woman was not only just a monster, but obsessed with plastic surgery. She's the oldest of seven kids from a working class family in Australia. And her mother apparently had schizophrenia and was put into a mental institution. So... She goes on to get married. Her name's Evelyn, by the way. She marries a a guy in the military. And at some point, he gets released from the military. And according to records that detectives were able to uncover, he had said in his release that it was important for him to go home and be with his wife because they had a young child. And he was fearful of that child because she seemed to be displaying, the mother seemed to be displaying signs of mental health, much like her own mother. And he was afraid that the child would not be safe. Soon after that, he's killed in a car accident, apparently on his way home from adopting another child, which is like, why would he adopt a child if he just said his wife was unstable? So she now is a widow, and she gets a full face of plastic surgery, like d- looks nothing like the woman that was Evelyn. And sh- then she changes her name to Anne Hamilton Byrne. And she's a yoga teacher. And she, that becomes like her new salvation. So, again, she's one of the first fe- or a few female cult leaders in history, and apparently one of the cruelest because she operated in almost total secrecy over two decades. This cult called the Family, hidden away in the countryside outside of Melbourne, and the Family's motto was unseen, unknown, unheard. So, the police in the first episode, acting on information from two child escapees, raid the cult in 1987. And it emerges that over the years, Hamilton Byrne had collected 28 children through bogus adoptions and gifts from followers and addressed them in identical clothes with big bows in their hairs and bleached their hair platinum. So they all look like like zombies. And most of the followers in this cult were people that were handpicked from Melbourne's wealthy professional elite with promises of spiritual fulfillment in the 60s and 70s when the New Age, uh, where New Age seeking was all the rage. And she would say things like, I've been waiting for you. You are so special. And basically, love bomb these highly educated people and convince them that she should be in charge of their children. So she develops this co- compound about two hours outside of Melbourne. And these women that she had basically brought in from her yoga practice, convinced them to follow her, even leaving their own husbands in some cases, give them all of her money and let them raise her children. And they would also need to raise other children that she had basically done under fraudulent circumstances for adoption. So in the 60s and 70s in Australia, it was really um, frowned on if you were a single mother. So they had a doctor, the obstetrician, who was a sect member and a nurse that was a sect member. So people have believed that these single mothers had been pressured into placing their child up for adoption. So it was like they would have the baby and 20 minutes later, the baby would disappear or someone would put something over their mouth and then they would wake up and they all, they can have a recollection of is the door closing because the baby was taken out of the room. So Anna's compound. She's got 28 kids. They all look the same. Well, she's trying to make them look the same. And that was all about control and convincing these children that, you know, look, we're all family. Look, we look exactly the same when in fact, none of them look alike at all, you know, outside of the the, the same hairstyle and clothing. So she has them on this compound, and they are subjected to to unspeakable abuse, just horrible abuse by not only Anne and her newfound husband, but these women that served as the aunties. And some of the children, their mother was an auntie, and it didn't matter. They were subjected to probably even more abuse if their own children were there. So she marries this man, Bill. He was married to another woman, and she goes to his wife and says, just so you know, he's mine now. And the woman apparently put up a fight and then she dies. It's like crazy stuff's going on. So what's interesting to me is that it's been speculated that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange had grown up in the family. And of course, his hair color and style didn't help as all, help that at all. But he had apparently admitted that a man who was his mother's boyfriend in the late 70s had been a member of the cult and that the man had been a sinister presence who sought to have a certain psychological power over the family and that they eventually went on the run from him. He never claimed to have met Anne Hamilton Byrne or had any direct contact with the group as a whole, but people have speculated that he was a member. So by the time of this police raid, she'd broken up families, destroyed marriages, left her children victims with lifelong scars, but she had amassed this unbelievable amount of wealth through property, land, and cash donated by followers. So she hides overseas because the authorities have kind of caught on to her, and she was eventually arrested in 1993 on a relatively minor fraud charge. So together with her second husband, the Bill, as I had mentioned, she received only $5,000 in fines in Australia, but no jail time. So she had never was held accountable for this long-serving child abuse. So they... They found her in a Melbourne nursing home. She spent like 12 years there and she suffered from advanced dementia and her hairline was on the top of her head because of these numerous facelifts. In fact, there is video footage of her going into a, a, uh, into a court room and before I guess the dementia kicked in or maybe it was already kicking in her, her hairline is frightening. I mean, it rattles you to the core. And the fact that she's had so much plastic surgery, are like unbelievable. Because she's basically taking everybody's money and she's just going on trips with her husband all across to evade authorities and getting facelifts. So what's interesting, like I said, is like there are very few examples where there are women that are the founders. Um, There was the... Amy Semple McPherson, who founded the Foursquare religion in L.A. in the 20s, or New Jersey-born Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who launched the church Universal and Triumphant in 1975. She encouraged her followers to build fallout shelters to prepare for imminent nuclear war. But Anne also had this apocalyptic theories too. It's like, I love these people. It's going to be the end of the world. And you're like, I thought you said the world would end on July 2nd. Like, what happened? So Yes. A lot of the children have come forward since. Their stories are harrowing. um, Unspeakable pain from those that had birth mothers that probably have never known what happened to their child. And that this woman who, by the way, had a dressmaker. She had a dressmaker make maternity clothes for like eight years. And she had a hysterectomy but pretended that she had given birth to all these kids that basically she had stolen from hospitals. I mean, it's just layer after layer after layer of craziness. And the survivors recall being given daily doses of Mogadon and Valium as children to keep them docile. And then when they reached the age of 14, they underwent formal initiation into the cold by being given huge, relentless doses of LSD in trips that often lasted several days. And that was like part of the cult's fabric. The prolonged doses were harrowing um, and the effects were catastrophic, especially on some of those young teenagers who suffered depression, personality changes, nightmares, social withdrawal. Even some of the SEC members that got pregnant, she was purposely very, um, would isolate them before and after they gave birth to a child and convince them that they were of not of the right mind and it would be better for them to go to a mental health facility or go go away for a year and then she would basically take over the child. But then she would go on trips and she'd have the aunties take care of these kids and 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 abuse them. So anyway, it's a very fascinating docu series is three episodes. You are just going to fly through it, especially if you are, you know, doing something else in the background. I mean, it's just a really fascinating show. It's called The Cult of the Family on Stars. Highly recommend. And the other Show I've been raving about is called Murder on Middle Beach on HBO. It's directed by Madison Hamburg. I asked Nick Rizzo in this episode; he's a senior producer for Watch What Happens Live to watch it because I just thought, you know, Nick has to watch Below Deck and Real Housewives all day. Let me throw him something else that is not in the Bravo sphere, just to like keep him on his toes. And fortunately, when I suggested to him, he's like, "Oh, that looks so good. I I actually really want to watch that." So. The story of Barbara Hamburg, whose Madison's mother is harrowing. So on March 3rd, 2010, her battered body is found outside of her home by her sister, Conway. She was stabbed 18 times. That day, she was supposed to attend a court hearing in a case against her ex-husband, Jeffrey Hamburg, over alimony and child support. So three family members, so her ex-husband, Jeffrey, her sister, Conway, and her daughter, Allie would become suspects at different points in the case. And Madison, who's the filmmaker, brilliantly takes us along on this journey through suspicion and trust. And so it's just heart-wrenching because he's facing all of these relatives and asking them questions which have obviously have been on his mind for years and to have the strength of courage to ask them with a camera. And that there are certain points where you're like, this I can't even imagine how painful this is for him, but he's still trying to crack open the case and take you along. What's interesting too is that even though she had this horrible relationship with her ex husband, and you're thinking at first, oh, it had to have been him, they're going through a custody issue, they had financial hardships, it's got to be him. But she was also part of something called the gifting tables, wherein groups of women would meet in their homes in Connecticut and basically gift money. Up a food chain of power. I'd never heard about it before. So, basically, the goal of the gifting table was to effectively offer a way for the group's higher ups to earn non taxable income. So, the way it worked was this tables of women were built in a pyramid structure of eight members, with one in the top, two in the second row, three in the third row, and four on the bottom the top member would recruit others to join her table. And so they would call it the appetizer for a fee of $5,000. And when I say that it has to be in cash, it always had to be cash. So those recruits would in turn recruit others who also had to pay a fee of $5,000 to the member at the top of the pyramid. So once eight new members joined the table, the most senior member of the one at the top checked out with their $40,000 and moved on to another table. The table would then split into two with the two second row members becoming the top members of the new tables ready to earn their $40,000 and all the other members moving up accordingly, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. So recruits were found largely among Alcoholics Anonymous groups, sometimes even being recruited by their own AA sponsors. And in this case, Barbara was a member of AA. So you have that layer. Did somebody who got screwed over in one of these gifting tables possibly murder her too? And then you've got another plot twist when you see the financial and legal papers of the ex-husband that hint at illegal international operations. There's more than enough story in this family tree for a miniseries or two on HBO in a scripted way because each relative is more compelling than next. And you're just constantly like, God, who could have done this? And they have the use of hidden audio recordings. Sometimes Madison goes into the police department in in Madison, which is of the same, the town is of the same name. And he's asking them questions about how the case is going. And you're just bracing for impact because you're thinking one of these police officers is going to figure out that he's bugged. Uh, conversations with his elusive, frustrating father, a man who seems entirely unwilling to talk about the death of his ex-wife, which is a red flag, of course, and he has a very troubled relationship with his dad. So you're you're watching him struggle to get information about his mother's murder and what their relationship was like, which obviously leads to even greater suspicion. So it's just compelling, too, because you're so it's so impactful to watch how committed he is to his the memory of his mother and this fear of what his relatives might say next so it's almost like you're asking yourself does he really want to know who killed her because that's going to be a whole other can of worms so i recommend it highly and i'm really glad that nick in this episode helps me review it so you can absolutely pause this episode and go, go ahead and watch it. But even if you haven't watched it yet, you will be fine. And then I had Danny and Sarah from Not Another True Crime Podcast on the Betches Network. Danny was just on my show recently, Danny Murphy. So funny. I forced these two to watch Carmel, who killed Maria Marta on Netflix. I think I roped a lot of you into watching it too. And a lot of you said, for the love of God, We really powered through four episodes, and we are now totally obsessed with Who Killed Maria Marta too. So can you please talk about it and what you think? So rest assured, I had Danny and Sarah with me in a segment in this episode talking about what we think. So for those of you who are not um, aware yet, Carmel Who Killed Maria Marta is a four-part Spanish-language docuseries from Argentina. So it is subtitled. So you have to pay attention, but it's going to be worth it. So Carmel was this gated community that wealthy Argentinians moved to for refuge from the city's violence and noise uh, right outside of Buenos Aires. Pilar is actually the town. Very well guarded that even ambulances need to check in by the guards. So Maria Marta is this 50-year-old sociologist who often appeared on her brother's TV talk show, and she enjoyed her life with her husband, Carlos Carrascosa. So after watching a soccer match, Maria Marta bikes home in the rain by herself after a tennis match got canceled. She was found by her husband face down, clothes and shoes still on, with her body hanging over the lip of a full bathtub. So two different ambulances containing two different emergency physicians were called into the scene. She was still alive when they first show up, but by the time the second one showed up, she was gone. So through reenactments and interviews with pretty much all of the principals in this case, as well as journalists who's covered it, we find out that both doctors ruled Maria Marta's death as accidental, but she was wearing her sneakers and she was a fairly athletic person. It didn't make much sense to her siblings that she would slip so badly. And one of the doctors recalled finding a few holes in her head and a piece of lead, perhaps a slug found nearby and this thingy as it was called by Horacio her brother flushed down the toilet by her older brother John mainly because no one thought it might have relevance to the case now if you see a dead body and there's like a clump of metal would you or would you not hand that over to authorities well this brother of hers decided it didn't seem like that big of a deal and flushed it down the toilet and then they opened up the sewer drain and then they recovered it It's bananas. So an eventual autopsy not only found that six holes were in her skull, but five of them had bullets still embedded in them for the love of God. Right? So it's a fascinating story because it's like, as I have mentioned before, it's like a Vanity Fair story. It's a true crime. It's society. It's all the makings of an HGTV show about mega mansions. It is such a fascinating case. And it was like the biggest case in Argentinian criminal history. And it's still unsolved. And so I feel like a lot of you who have watched a huge amount, a huge amount of Dateline, 48 Hours Mystery, you listen to tr- True Crime Podcast, this is an episode for you because you've got two cold cases that you're going to crack. I really feel it in my bones. I'm like, you guys are the greatest listeners of our time. And you are going to listen to this after watching these specials. And you're going to go, I figured it out. I cracked the case. If that happens and you guys do crack the case, please make sure you mention me in some sort of speech press conference given before authorities where you make them feel smaller than anything because you, through your television, were able to crack the case. I would so appreciate it. So this is really an episode for people that are loving deep diving this holiday season. I don't know. Maybe you guys are sick of your relatives. Maybe you're like, I'm, I'm glad to not be with you. Maybe you're like, I just want to kick it in my room and just watch a bunch of true crime shows and just have a bottle of wine this is for you i promise you so here we go nick welcome to the show thank you i'm so excited to be here tell me a little bit about how you got into tv and about your job
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went to school um, at USC and I studied film and TV and I always knew I wanted to work in TV in some capacity. And I loved talk shows. I've always been a huge talk show junkie. And for me, I love theater and I love TV and film and pop culture. So this felt like the perfect amalgamation of that. And I also have always been obsessed with Bravo and The Housewives so then after graduating, I bopped around from talk show to talk show, and then there was an opening at Watch It Happens Live, and it's been a match made in heaven ever since. It's such a dream job. It's just like pure bliss. I mean, to say that this is a job for me, it's, I can't even deal with it.
0: Someone once told me that if you want to work for Disneyland, you have to say in the interview, I have never wanted to work anywhere but Disneyland. Is it the same way at Bravo? Are they like, what have you been watching this week? And you have to say, I've been watching Real Housewives of Atlanta or something.
1: Honestly, like the great thing about working at Bravo is that you need to have an encyclopedic knowledge. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I've been watching since, like, my mom watched it in the early, she watched OC in the very early stages, like season three or four, Mm -hmm. and that's how I started watching. Uh, But yeah, like, it's, it's, there's just been such a breadth of shows. So it's, you have to watch everything and every, yeah, everything.
0: What is the, who was the first guest that walked onto the set of Watch What Happens Live where you thought, this is very meta,
1: probably one of the first I started in 2013 there and one of the first days I was there I'm pretty sure was one of um it was for Andy's birthday and we had Teresa there and Melania came in with a little mini horse with a unicorn I remember like horn on it and she was dressed as a fairy and she she was like (laughs) this is your present and this I was like this was maybe my first or second week, and I was like, "How is this my job? I am so lucky and so blessed, <laughs> Like I
0: can't What is like a typical day for you look like
1: so i I manage our research department on the show, but it is such a small staff, so we are very collaborative. Everyone is kind of doing everything, but usually pre pandemic. I'm usually prepping for the next week um, of like guests that are booked for the show and figuring out like what pitching games to play with them. Like what plead the fifth questions are we going to ask? Yada, yada. And then halfway through the day, it kind of shifts where I start looking for like muzzles and jackals of the night to pitch and um, for that night's live show. And then during the show, I'm usually on the phones when when fans are calling into the show and I'm fielding questions and that is so much fun, but also so chaotic and crazy. And that's been one of the best. Yeah. It's been amazing.
0: (laughs) Who has been the most drunk guest? Is it Jack A?
1: I would say like Jack A and Regina King were before my time, but they're definitely up there. I think Andy wrote about this in his book so I don't feel like I'm speaking out of school but I think Christina Ricci threw up at one point (laughs) uh, because she's like she's tiny she's a little lightweight Mm -hmm. yeah and then one that tickles me so much that I'm so happy she's finally talking about is Drew Barrymore she did this interview with Andy uh, to promote her new talk show where she was apologizing to him for how drunk she was the last time she was on, and and Andy was like, I don't even remember that at all. Da, da, da. Yeah. So then I was thinking, wait, I kind of remember that. So I went back, and if you watch the after show of that episode, it's on YouTube. She has been drinking wine, and she like the callers are asking her questions, and I think the one one caller asked her like her favorite memory of Carrie Fisher because she did all of the rewrites for um The Wedding Singer and and Drew just starts talking about her lovely like Spanish Mediterranean house and just does this whole diatribe about that like she's not answering any questions but she keeps drinking this giant glass of wine and I was like I love her so much
0: that speaks to her personality too, that you wouldn't necessarily know if she was drunk or sober just because she always talks about that's, stuff yeah. like
1: that. Yeah. Oh but God, then so after, funny. but then watching it, I'm like, oh yeah, she's bombed.
0: Yeah. yeah. What's, who's been the biggest surprise guest?
1: Surprise in that, like.
0: You, like you went home and you thought I did not expect that at all, but. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, trying to think, I mean, there haven't been, for me, too many that I've been blown away by. Maybe I did love. We had Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen on oh, a couple years that. ago to promote their movie they were doing together, and I remembered like Charlize just admitted to doing. Like, Andy asked her like, "What drugs she tr- she's ever tried?" And she was just like, "Molly, ecstasy, cocaine." Da, da, da. And like and that that blew me away. Yeah. That was surprising. Yeah. I was like, "Oh my god."
0: Okay, so you, because of your job, you're watching a prodigious amount of television. And I was excited yeah. to hear that I, I don't know if I roped you into it or if you already had plans, but there is this new HBO series, docuseries called Murder yes. on Middle Beach. So what were your thoughts when you read the description of the show? Are you a true crime person? Or were you thinking like, I'm I'm going in deep diving?
1: Yeah, I'm not usually the biggest true crime person but I do love like my lifetime movies I love <laughs> a big little lies I'm obsessed mm. with the undoing right now on um HBO and so it felt I was seeing the promos and it just felt like something I would gravitate towards and I'm also like a huge mama's boy and just the story seemed oh, so know. personal and heartbreaking and it, it was just it pulled me in
0: so as people know um Barbara Hamburg's body was found on her front lawn. She was stabbed 18 times in this beautiful town, beautiful town called Madison, Connecticut. What's confusing is that the son's name is Madison. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then her maiden name is Beach and she lives at the beach. It's a murder at Middle Beach. It's like a little bit confusing at first, but you get sucked in right away. Now, Mm -hmm. when we're ever confronted with the story of somebody that's been stabbed A number of times, usually those in forensics would say that's a a murder committed by someone that knows them is close to them. It's a A crime crime of passion. passion. Yeah. So when you watch the first episode and you hear that she has this ex-husband and that she was due in court that day for a custody arrangement and that the husband had a lot of financial problems, you're immediately, most people would think it had to have been the husband. But the husband was in court when at the time of the that, that they think that the murder was committed. Yeah. So it's confusing. Um, Mm -hmm. We've seen an episode so far. The second episode is to air on Sunday. We're also going to learn that her sister was the first person to find the body. She has a little bit of a sketchy story, and she thinks that Barbara's daughter, Allie, who's Barbara Alexandra, they have been involved because they had a tumultuous relationship. And then there's also mention that Barbara was involved in a pyramid scheme called the Gifting Table.
1: Gifting tables, yeah.
0: And that someone may have been upset because they're a spouse that's maybe in financial problem to find out that their wife is part of this scheme and may have lost a ton of money. So there are all these people that are possible killers. It's a lot to take in, and that's juxtaposition with the story of this young boy. In, because we see the progression from a college student to a young man who has to confront his father, whom he already has a tumultuous relationship with, about the relationship that he had with his ex-wife and also really with his own son. So what has so far has been the part that's tugged at your heartstrings the most?
1: I think for me, the part that's tugged at my heartstrings, but also made me lean in a little bit was towards the end of the first episode when he does meet his father. And this is the first time he's seeing him in a very long time and he's secretly recording him Uh, and they get a beer together. And it's the first time that the two of them are just having a beer together, just a father son moment. Um, So that was just, it just it hurt so much because there were so many years that were just wasted. wasted. And then also, something that I noticed when, because the um, Madison, he just wanted to ask his dad flat out, Did you kill my mother? And then he's asking him, Did you have anything to do with this? And he's not really answering that question, mm-hmm. which makes me believe, because he does say he was in court that day, and it's, I just, I feel like maybe if he did, and I don't want to speculate too much because, you know, these are real people and these are real lives, but yes, he was, the dad was in court that day, but you don't know that he wasn't involved in some
0: capacity. Sure. And the financial stuff really does sound strange. And he also tried to take money out of a, of an account that his daughter had. Um, I do think that people when they're in financial, um, financial hardship. They have financial hardships. They make really dumb decisions compounded Mm -hmm. with someone's utter hatred for an ex spouse. But the fact that this woman was involved in this pyramid scheme does seem kind of odd. It seems very
1: sketchy. And I have a lot of friends from high school that I'm seeing on Facebook that are now doing very like pyramid schemey things on Facebook, you know, like yeah. they're making oyster necklaces like with pearls and stuff like all of these things that I'm watching. I'm like, you know, that you're not making any money off of this, but this seems much sketchier.
0: And then it says, for some women, their involvement in the tables came at a cost, requiring them to liquidate savings accounts or refinance their homes since an entry into the group required. A $5,000 cash gift to another woman.
1: Yeah. Like, this is not a chef. No. You're no. not
0: getting skincare products. You're not going to get <laughs> yeah. a necklace. Yeah. So is it possible that somebody may have become so angry at her because they depleted their savings account? Because I'm Madison the, yeah. says that a lot of the, the friends saw a change in her over time. And that the last few months before her murder, there was something bothering her. But could it have been more than just an unhappy ex-wife?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it, it's, there are lots of different avenues. And it is, it is crazy that it's, it hasn't been solved yet.
0: I, I love nothing more than a cold case because there's going to be some sort of forensic armchair expert like you and me that cracks the case. They're going to see something. And I want the person that solves it, and I hope it's you or it's me, that we get a trophy. (laughs) And the fact that the police department is so odd. I mean, there's that conversation that he has with the police department, and then you can hear them sort of intimating that Madison could have been the killer. And you're like, if he was the killer... Why would he be this distraught wanting to film, wanting to interview all of you? Like he's that much of a sociopath that he can do some mind trickery to like switch tables. Like what?
1: Yeah. Although I will say a lot of times killers like to see, they like to go back to the scene of the crime and they like, they like, they like their trophies and they like to try to get as close as possible to see if they got away with it. But I don't, I don't know. He just seems so sweet.
0: You watched this first episode. Did you go to bed with a flashlight, a knife under your pillow, and the doors locked?
1: I had to watch some Reba reruns after on CMT. <laughs> which, no! Yeah.
0: So tell everybody where they can catch the show and where they can follow you.
1: Um, they can catch Watch What Happens Live on Bravo, and they can follow me. I'm on, like, Instagram and Twitter at Rizzo 815
0: Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. Oh, my God. Of course. Thank you. Sarah and Danny are hosts of Betches Media's Not Another True Crime podcast. They love true crime and so do I. I have roped them into watching the Netflix docuseries called Carmel, Who Killed Maria Marta. Welcome to the show. Kate, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. On your level of annoyance wh- from one to 10, ha- where do I stand after having you watch all these episodes? Are you okay with it? Or have you made peace with it? Am I going to get a dead horse's head delivered to my house?
2: <laughs> I kind of felt like by the end of it, I was like, can I speak Spanish? I can at least understand it, right?
3: No, exactly. There are a few people that I would, like, read for, like, out of, like, I would spend a week in reading, and that's what the subtitles were, and I was like, Kate Casey is one of them. And now you made me realize, I think I would like more documentaries to be subtitled, like, True Crime, because I felt like I focused so much more on it.
0: Oh that the truth? Oh, my God. You you could not, that was, at first, driving me crazy. I thought, I cannot Google anything. I can't text anybody, Mm -hmm. because I really have to pay attention.
3: I just drank wine through it. I was like, oh, I'll have like red wine. I'll be Spanish. I'll be cute while watching this. Yes. I am like, "I blacked out. I forgot half. I was like, what's happening? So I had to rewatch. Yeah. <laughs> but it was worth it.
0: <laughs> so were you familiar with this case, with the story at all?
2: No. I had never heard of it. Which is Which is wild.
3: shocking. Because it was like a huge one there. I feel, It was a like huge one there. And I'm like, how did this not make waves in America?
0: Let's go through the case. Now, we understand that she was playing tennis. She comes home. She's found in the tub there's blood all over the floor her relative her husband and her relatives come home and the police are eventually called they say or her husband suggests that maybe she fell hit her head on a beam and then we come to find out once the bodies exhumed that there are bullet hole- holes in her head that were filled with glue what in the hell is going on in buenos aires argentina
2: I really did have a lot of questions because I was just like, wait, you guys called the prosecutor to the crime scene. That was bizarre to me. Um, and, And just a lot of stuff like that. I'm like, she she had five bullets in the side of her head and it looked like a fall. Like, how how small are these bullets? That's what I don't
3: get from the get go. I'm like, where, where, who was looking at anything? Was people just like with their eyes closed, like pin the tail on the cause <laughs> of death? Like, I did not know how they were running the show there.
0: Well, and then the husband says, I never thought she was dead because he found her unconscious in the bathtub. You never thought she was dead with all those bullet holes in her head? And blood?
2: It's bizarre
3: it's it's so bizarre to be and also so bizarre that they just kind of didn't even like think they were just like oh i guess this is what happened and nothing and even for the netflix documentary the first episode i didn't even i was like oh maybe i guess she did just fall and then i'm like bullets episode two okay. i know they
2: convinced me and and why did it like, take so long to get to the bullets <laughs>
3: i knew everyone in her extended family took two episodes in to learn that she died by bullets yeah
2: So he
0: calls for an ambulance and doctors quickly deemed it an accident. Maria, a sociologist who'd work for a foundation for missing children, which, by the way, added an extra layer because you're like, someone might be kind of pissed that she's calling them Mm -hmm. out for kidnapping somebody and seemingly hit her head and drowned in the tub. She was 50 years old. The doctor who filled out her death certificate listed the cause as non-traumatic cardiac arrest. I think that's a bit of a stretch, my friend. Her (laughs) family signed off on it, and her body was interred barely 24 hours after she died. And meanwhile, the police never came to the house, and no one called them. But not everyone was on board with the official explanation. Her family said that someone must have broken in, that perhaps having come home early when her tennis tennis match was called off due to the rain, she had a surprised robber in the act and Maria's stepbrother insisted that local authorities take another look at the case yet it was an ambulance driver at the scene who first told investigators that that there had actually been at least three holes in her head and not holes consistent with banging her head on the top on the tap. and about a month After she'd been interred at Recoleta Cemetery, not far from the gravesite of former Argentinian First Lady Eva Perón, Prosecutor Diego Molino Pico ordered the exhumation of her body, which of course we know they learned there were five bullets in her skull, and determined that a sixth bullet had grazed her head. So the local media goes wild with the news that the domestic accident that they had been told about was actually a fatal shooting, especially since it came from a wealthy, wealthy, beautiful neighborhood. And I have to say, if you're someone who loves Zillow, check out those houses because those were gorgeous. (laughs) During a search of the house, investigators discovered what turned out to be bullet fragments from a plumbing pipe. And as the docu-series recalls, the papers seized on the discovery of the thingy that Maria's stepbrother, John acknowledged flushing down the toilet. Furthermore, traces of blood were found that indicated Maria had been first attacked on the ground floor of her home before being killed in her upstairs bathroom. You lied to me, Molina Pico accused Carlos at the time, and with that, the prosecutors had a homicide investigation on their hands, telling reporters I'm the one who has to determine who killed her. So, of course, some people think that the husband had to have done it. He goes to jail for for some time. Uh, He's Obviously released from jail because he's doing some interviews on his couch while smoking a cigarette. And I thought, this guy's living the real life. Am I right? He
2: really is.
0: (laughs) I love that. He was just full on sitting like a boss, lighting a cigarette, being like,
3: I
2: was thrown in jail. What? You're like, okay. okay, But then simultaneously, like trying to convince us that house arrest was worse than prison. Because he was like, ah, in prison, I could like play cards here uh, I'm but bored I know, but
0: I, then I thought about it and I do think I remember watching a 60 minutes on jails in Germany and I was like their jails are pretty nice so I don't know maybe in Buenos Aires they do have like places where you can play poker and chess and hang out and watch telenovelas maybe it's not so bad
3: maybe you get a martha stewart moment when you're just like oh my god like they only have like a few types of green beans but i still get to make my casserole
0: yeah (laughs) maybe okay so the indictment that was presented on february of 2004 alleged that carlos the husband had been laundering money for a mexican drug cartel Mm -hmm. and had killed his wife who was involved with the criminal enterprise with the help of two unnamed accomplices to keep her from talking Moreover, everyone who gathered with him at the house in the hours after he reported finding Maria's body from her brother to the masseuse tried to help Carlos cover it up, fear of the cartel having imposed silence upon those that were tied to the crime. Do you guys believe this is plausible in the indictment from the prosecutors, suggesting that the husband had worked in cahoots uh, with the family members and that they were terrified of a drug cartel coming after them?
2: I don't know because. They never really, unless I texted through this part, they they didn't like seem to present a lot of proof about the cartel. But no, I they do. Did
0: not. No, they did not. Yeah,
2: they were just like, oh, uh, it was them. Um, but I do agree that like the family acted super suspicious and mm-hmm. and like they would have to be, I don't know, huge bumbling idiots to have made like so many just accidental mistakes that Mm -hmm. covered up someone else's crime, like flushing the bullet down the toilet and like not letting the police in and all that other stuff.
3: And also they were getting to a point too when it was almost like Mamba number five, how many people they were listing was involved with. (laughs) They're like, Jessica, damn, I'm like the masseuse, someone down the street, The ambulance, the person who works at the Starbucks nearby. I'm like, all these people are involved to get this one woman cover-up. I don't think, like, it just seems too much energy. And I know, like, drug cartels do have that energy and do have the push. I'm not shading their work ethic, but I feel it (laughs) might be a little, like, they might be putting a little too much stock in their reach of these, like, 45 people that are involved in this scenario type of thing.
0: Yeah, maybe the drug cartel people are like, appreciate it. We like the press, but actually not involved. So, according to Argentina new argentina noir new millennium crime novels in buenos aires which probed how various fictional stories were inspired by real life cases one family member was accused of obtaining a false death certificate two others were accused of tampering with evidence the first medic at the scene the doctor who had sign the death certificate and nine funeral home employees were also accused of being part of the alleged cover-up So, too, were the masseuse, as Danny mentioned, uh, who had showed up for an appointment that afternoon, not knowing Maria was dead. Now, that's a big bummer. You're a masseuse. (laughs) You show up to a house and she's dead. I don't know. Probably time for you to change careers. Accused of helping them clean up up the blood. A neighbor who allegedly told the Carmel Country Club president to keep police out of the community and pay them off if Mm -hmm. he had to. And a female friend of Maria's who insisted to authorities that no autopsy was necessary. Melina Pico's critics... He's, again, this detective, accused him of throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick. So determined was he to close the case that he was shaping facts due to his theory rather than letting the facts guide his investigation. It is my experience with a lot of these countries that they have these grand theories that are based on the most bizarre things. Like in the Amanda Knox case, they they believed there was like satanic worship. I feel like in Argentina, the criminal system, I'm like... These people make up stuff in their minds, and it doesn't matter how much evidence you have. It's crazy. So Carlos pled not guilty, was acquitted of his wife's killing in 2007. By then, prosecutors had quietly dropped the cartel motive, no solid evidence having come to light, as mentioned. But the prosecution appealed, and the appellate court convicted Carlos, and in June of 2009, he was sentenced to life in prison for aggravated homicide. In September of 2011, five of the people accused of aiding in the cover-up were found guilty and sentenced to anywhere from four to six and a half years in jail. But two minutes later, they were all freed on bail, pending appeal. So if you were in Argentina and covering this case, it must have felt like whiplash. because uh, now The, the in amount 2000- of
3: edits, yeah. I know, The amount right? of edits that they had to go back and forth to be like, oh, wait, guys, no, he's not in jail.
0: Oh, he's in jail. <laughs> I, like, I ho- so many corrections. Poor
3: software system, yeah.
0: In 2015, three of the sentences were upheld while a fourth was dismissed. The fifth person convicted had died by then because, of course, his lawyers having immediately appealed his conviction, Argentina's highest court overturned Carlos's guilty verdict in December of 2016 after new testing showed that his DNA didn't match any traces found at the scene. Why could we have not uh, gotten that ahead of time? And so the investigation remains open. I ask the two of you, given the amount of episodes that you watched, oh, your expertise in crimes uh, via podcasting, <laughs> your degrees in armchair forensics, your feelings, <laughs> where do you stand? Who do you think committed this crime? Sarah, you go first.
2: I think that sketchy guy, the, the sketchy neighbor, Nicholas, whatever. I they, know. They, all of a sudden, they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, he was a total thug who would steal people's shit and try to hold our dog ransom.
0: Yeah. Yes. Like, and they, they kind of slipped that in. Yeah, oh, by the like way, just as a side lead. note, we have this weird neighbor. There were two accomplices, <laughs> and one of them in the drawing that someone had made of uh, this strange woman who was a maid, she looked remarkably like the neighbor's wife. That's
3: the, the. I was just like, why are they not? Why are they dancing around this in the documentary? Because sometimes I feel like Netflix documentaries come out to bring more light to uh, <laughs> like um, suspects that they feel like didn't get their due time and kind of like biasly paint a picture against them. Mm-hmm. Which I'm like, okay, but you know, if you got if you gotta flaunt it. But for them, they're just like, oh yeah, the Bunchero guy. But you're like, why is no one always talking about him? Like he, yes. if the entire neighborhood is afraid of him. Right. <laughs> and, like they got in the altercase, like a tiff with the dog, like a little bit before. Why are we not pointing
0: fingers to them? Him. It was it was very dateline NBC to just throw in the real <laughs> facts of the case and the mm-hmm. you know, the 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 third part of the show. And also the crazy neighbor, uh his father owned the development. So if he calls his father and says, "Whoopsie, just murdered my neighbor," the the guy in Argentina who has this beautiful development and a country club in the middle of it—that's a lot of insurance recovery money that he needs to get. So, it's in his best interest to cover up the crime, get her body out. And one of the death certificates said she was she was deceased. She she died in an apartment building in Recoleta, which is close to the cemetery. Yeah. I'm thinking they needed to have the death certificate note another place of death because they don't want anyone to know that someone died within the gates. This is very Real Housewives of Orange County.
3: But hundred, but I think you're 100% on the money. Yeah, because it's like they don't want the property values to go down. They don't want this little gated community plagued and they want it to still be this idyllic thing. And they're like, oh, well, you know, whatever. Or like, oh, we can't help that uh, her husband was involved with drugs or something like that. But like, they're crazy but everyone else is so nice here and you'll be happy here next to my son Panchero.
0: Yeah. And they also wanted to, wanted to make it seem like Carlos was, uh, was involved with the drug cartel because that, that at least they can get rid of the dead weight and get him out of the neighborhood. And the house value still remains high. I kind of want to visit that house though. Does that make me sick? I don't know. No, <laughs> no. I uh, that would be like that could be your new thing. It's like
3: VRBOs, but for where murders happened, Do you just stay there for a week, snuff out the stuff. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I bet there is. There's probably some I feel market like that, for that. Yeah, yeah, that has to exist already. <laughs> like air,
3: yeah, air dod, air dead or air doa, air dead on uh, Rumble, and you get there. Oh and my just god! Like, so who died here? Yeah, it's a whole fun little feature. I mean, that, there's a market for that. There
0: is a market for that, <laughs> like, and then you could have like a psychic stay with you, and then they could channel. <sighs>
2: Right. Okay. Well, did you guys remember that part in the documentary where they were like this one woman was like, yes, I've been a legit journalist for 35 years. So I decided to bring a medium into the house. And I was like, ma'am. But that is very, that's very, Um. Our,
0: I feel like the South Americans, that would probably be quite normal. They're like, well, we brought in a Reiki expert, a psychic. We had somebody that does tarot cards, and they would be the first line of investigators, not the people that have degrees in forensics. So in the end, are we all in agreement that Nicholas, the neighbor, killed Maria Marta?
2: Seems the most likely to me. Like, Who else would have participated in like a burglary gone wrong, except the neighbor who we already know likes to steal everybody's shit? Exactly. And
3: while there might be motive about her because of her job and her situation, but I feel like in a gated community, I feel like almost it has to happen that it comes from within the gate. Like the call is coming from within the house. How can someone actually get in there without them noticing them? Like just some random person who was mad at her versus someone who was already there. They're like, oh, he's just walking his Stolen and also, dog. again,
2: at the end, like, I swear, this was like the last 10 minutes. They were like, oh, yeah, by the way, like the security cam was out. Like they cut the <laughs> alarm or something like that. Like it, it seemed to be an inside job. And I was like, you didn't think to bring this up earlier. Truly. Netflix just wants my views. Mm-hmm. Ne- well, they and achieved we it. To it. Them. We gave it Yeah, to they
0: them. achieved it hard. Yeah.
2: <laughs> what is
0: your next episode about? What Which true crime are you going to be tackling in your next episode?
3: Well, we're doing the, uh, we just uh, uncovered this. uh, We call him kind of an icon, a scam icon. Love him. Have you heard about the guy who pretended to be a Saudi
2: prince? Yeah, for like 20 years or something (laughs) insane, he pretended to be this like fake Saudi prince. My friend brought this up because the guy was from Michigan. My friend was like, did he even speak Arabic? And we're like, I actually don't know. That never came up in all the (laughs) research we did. (laughs) Like, we don't even know how hard he really researched the scam.
0: Oh my god, Literally. amazing. Oh my god. An icon. Tell us where we can catch your show.
3: Uh on all podcast platforms at not another true crime podcast. Just search that up. It's by Betches Media, you know. So we have a we're a little betchy there. We have fun. <laughs> the
0: amazing Kate Casey. I want to thank my awesome guests, Danny and Sarah and Nick remind you guys to click subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes. Join the Facebook group Reality Life with Kate Casey where you can meet other cool people and you can join us as we talk about different podcast books and great TV shows to watch. You can find me on Instagram at at KateCaseyCA. See what I'm up to, what I'm watching. I put out a list every week of the must things to watch, which by the way, you're going to really need this week um, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Kate Casey. I always tweet about shows and during shows during the week. I have a Patreon page for bonus episodes. I have a bonus episode already this week about the Royal Bride Prisoner Bride, Charlene of Monaco. That story is a doozy and I've got video that goes with it. So make sure you check that out. Patreon, dot com backslash Kate Casey bonus episodes. And I'm wishing you guys a great, great Holiday. If I haven't said it enough, I'll say it again. I'm so grateful for all of you that take the time out of your busy lives to listen to my episodes, to send me notes. It really means a lot to me. And I'm just grateful that I could have a great job where I can watch all this television and then be able to connect with you, interview such cool people, and, you know, just uh, be in the thick of things. So, again, I'm wishing you all a great holiday. And lastly, I want to say thank you to all of those that work on the front lines, who are nurses and doctors, who are who work in the hospitals, as janitors, who are keeping the system going and are taking care of our those of our loved ones that are sick. I want you to know how grateful I am to you for our our beloved ones that are overseas serving time. Um, serving our country. I want you to know how grateful I am. And I'm just wishing everyone good health and lots of love um, from loved ones and friends this holiday season.